0: Let's open our Bibles again to Zechariah. Zechariah, the sixth chapter, beginning at verse nine to the end of the chapter. Before we uh, pray and read, one of our young ladies coming out of the service last week asked if I would distinguish dream and vision dream from vision. And uh, I I should have said something about that earlier on because of the night visions of Zechariah. The question came to this young lady's mind. Uh, When we come to the Bible and we find in the Old Testament that the Lord used dreams as one of the methods of revealing himself through the prophets and to his people, this happened usually when the prophets were asleep Visions ordinarily happened when the prophet was awake. Vision actually means something seen, and it usually happened in a trance-like state that is sometimes called ecstasis. The distinction, however, is not always hard and fast when you come to the Scriptures. And to Moses, you will remember that God said, not through dreams, not through visions, but I'm going to speak with him face to face. That is to say, directly, because Moses was a prefigurement of Christ to come, who would be the ultimate revealer of the Father to us. And so God no longer uses dreams and visions, but we have a complete Bible in which Christ is revealed to us. That's the short of it. There is a long of it, but that's the short of it. So we come down to Zechariah, the sixth chapter, verse 9 and following. Let us pray. Our Father, we're thrilled to come to this passage and to read of our, our priest king who rules and reigns, and we pray that we would have open hearts to the one who rules and reigns. We ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would apply the priestly work of Christ to our souls, and we pray that we would submit under the rulership and reign of our great King, but also to take these themes together this morning that he is our priest-king is a thrill for the soul. Grant that we will not have coldness of heart. Grant that we will be warm. Do not allow the things of this world to so tantalize or to capture us that we fail to be captured by the grace of God that has come to us in Christ. And use, we pray, as Thou hast ordained the reading and proclamation of Thy Word, that our hearts may continually be directed away from self, a self-focus, to a Christ-focus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand, Zechariah, the sixth chapter. This is the Word of God, beginning with verse 9. And the Word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Chelem Tobijah, Jediah, and Chen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, people of God, this section is a powerful and glorious prophecy. It points in a most wonderful, encouraging, and glorious manner to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the priest king of his people. I can agree with Dr. Feinberg when he says that here we have the end and consummation of all the prophetic scriptures, the crowning of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though I differ from Dr. Feinberg on many of his views on prophecy, I think that is an excellent statement indeed. You know, there's been an emphasis upon office all the way through Zechariah. Zechariah himself is a prophet called of God, and he also was a priest, as we know. In vision six, we had Joshua, the high priest of God's people, with filthy clothes, and those clothes removed and those clothes replaced by justifying righteousness. And now we have the priestly and kingly office of Christ. The background of this passage is that as the temple is being rebuilt, there are those who have been sent from the Jews who still remain in Babylon with gifts for the rebuilding of the temple, a deputation of Jews that has brought gold and has brought silver from Babylon to Jerusalem, and their hearts were determined to serve the Lord, Haldai, Tobijah, Jediah, but also there is Josiah and also the name Chen is used, meaning grace or, or uh, the grace of God being indicated, who is the one who shows hospitality to these men who bring these gifts. And in verse 11, we are told that the Lord through Zechariah commanded that he take of the silver and gold and make crowns and set those crowns, or we will see perhaps a composite crown, and place it on the head of Joshua the high priest. And the two points of this symbolic action are summarized in verses 12 and 13, and 14 and 15, respectively, as we shall see. So, with that background in mind, the first thing that we see in this wonderful prophetic addendum to the night visions, and what an addendum it is, the first thing we see is the crowning of Joshua, and we read of this in the 11th verse, verse 11 take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so they are to crown Joshua, who is the high priest at this stage in Israel's life. Joshua, of course, being the Hebrew word that is Jesus in the New Testament. And we have here what is probably a composite crown because it's in the plural. And so it can mean crowns. But if a crown is being placed upon the head of Joshua the high priest and made for him, then I think the idea is that it is a composite crown rather than many crowns. So in Revelation 19.12, Jesus is so said to be crowned with with, uh, dia dimata pala, many crowns, which probably there also does not mean many different kinds of crowns, but it means a magnificent crown that would have been made of many parts, placed upon him so as to display his dignity as the king of kings. Joshua the high priest, of course, is the representative of God's people and also is a type of Jesus Christ who is crowned. Now, young people, when we use the word type or we speak of typology, we mean by that that he is a prefigurement of something that is to come. In this case, someone who is to come who is Christ. Just as the animal sacrifices were prefigurements of Christ, so also Joshua as high priest is a type of Christ, and the crowning of him is a type of prefigurement. Dr. Michael Barrett calls type a picture prophecy, and maybe that would be helpful to you. It's a picture that is prophetic of that which is to come. So the type is emphasized also in that in verse 12, he is called the branch. Notice that. It says in verse 12, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now you will remember that in chapter 3, verse 8, we already have seen the name branch. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. And the branch, of course, is a a name of the Messiah, a messianic name that is used in Jeremiah, dependent on Isaiah. There's garden imagery. Israel is a garden that would grow. And because of sin, God destroys the garden, but he leaves a stump. And so we also have the remnant theme. You cut the tree, and the next season a sprout shoots up. And in Jeremiah 23 and in Jeremiah 33, the branch is the name of the Messiah. And there also is there a play on the name Zedekiah, That means Jehovah is just because the righteous king to come, who is the branch, is also called Jehovah Tsekenu, the Lord our righteousness. In other words, the one who justifies is the Messiah. Only he can justify who is the Lord our righteousness. Now, all of that and more is connected with the name of the Messiah as the branch, But there also is a probable reference in verse 12 to Isaiah chapter 53 because the Hebrew is similar and we recognize the connection. When we read in Isaiah 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And so what we're learning from this passage in Isaiah 53 is that when he comes, he would be humble, he would indeed be humiliated, that it prefigures a Christ who would be humble, his condition would be offensive to the world. But we read in Zechariah of this righteous branch, this suckling, if you will, who comes up that in his growth and in the power that is his… He would actually build the temple. That's what we read there in verse 12. The branch is the one who will build the temple. Now the fact that Joshua prefigures Christ is also stressed by telling us that he is a priest who is given a kingly crown. What a theme. You might say, well pastor, the priest crowned? And you would be right to think that way because The priest was not of David's line. The king was of David's line. No priest in the Old Testament was a king. No king in the Old Testament was a priest. And yet in this passage, we are told of a priest-king. Remember that Uzziah the king was chastised by the Lord for offering incense, which was a priestly function and punished by the Lord. You can read about that in Second Chronicles 26, because God's law separated the office of priest from the office of king. And so the picture of prophecy is actually very clear, and it is very wondrous, and it is very profound, and it is very glorious for us to contemplate this morning. The crowning of Joshua the priest pointed to a high priest who would come, who would also be king. So pictured for God's people was the one person of Christ in which are united the two offices of priest and king. Now keep your finger here and just turn for example to the first chapter of the book of Hebrews and we could look at many passages in Hebrews that would confirm this very truth that is being revealed here in Zechariah. But in the first chapter, it opens with these wonderful, wonderful words. Chapter 1 of Hebrews, the first four verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, that is, by dream, by vision, and other ways. And so you have the priest who sacrificed himself and satisfied the justice of God, who purified our sins, purged us from our sins, and after he did this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because he is king Sitting with God the Father. You see, all of this imagery that is found in Zechariah is imagery that is conjured here also by divine inspiration, so that we recognize that Jesus is priest king. Or if we went to the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews, there you find that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, as we heard this morning in the 110th psalm. Because Melchizedek, we read in Genesis 14, had no genealogy there was no record of his birth no record of his death and so he was the perfect image because he was a king who also was a priest of king priest of Salem who had no beginning and no end and so Christ who is God himself who became incarnate is now the priest after the order of melchizedek The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord has sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the mission that he was to accomplish, according to verse 12, is the building of the temple. More about that in a while. And so, people of God, from all of these wonderful images here, we learn that our priest has been crowned, that Jesus is our priest, king. Which leads us to the second thing. Contemplate how this meets our case. I hope what you're going to write down in your notes is how he meets my case, my need. What encouragement for those who were preparing to rebuild the temple and engaged in it. They looked ahead to Christ through their high priest Joshua, but to see him crowned as as the prefigured priest king must have been strangely encouraging to them. By the way, I am of the mind that at various points, especially the Old Testament saints understood more about the coming of Christ than we generally give them credit for. Abraham saw my day and was glad, said Jesus. Jesus. And so they understood something of the Messiah who would come, who would be priest-king, even though the details are perhaps perhaps not clear to them. They understand that this is the truth. But we who look back upon Jesus Christ and what he did when he came to this earth are even more encouraged, are we not? Because the high priest of our souls is Jesus, and the king of our souls is the Lord Jesus. He is our prophet, prefigured in Zechariah. He is our high priest, prefigured by Joshua the high priest, and he is our king. He is our high priest. He is our king, the priest king coming. That is the theme of the vision. So let's think about what encouragement this should bring to you and to me. You see, we need a priest. If you're here today and you're lost, you need a priest. You must have a priest. I don't speak of any, any minister who is a priest, any ordained minister, or anyone in the church that is your priest. You need Jesus as your priest. We cannot do without our high priest. Christ alone meets the need, because I'm fallen and must have Christ as my high priest. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism says, How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer is, Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. And he must share in my humanity, the book of Hebrews teaches, with a sympathy that is effectual. He must make sacrifice for my sin. And so he must also be my intermediary between the Holy One and me, who is able to reconcile God to me and me to God, to give me peace in my soul, who offers himself as an act of worship acceptable to God for the satisfaction of the wrath of God that had gone out against me. Yes, he meets my case as my great high priest. He redeems my soul. And he must be my high priest because I cannot approach God without him. His sacrifice is alone sufficient to present me righteous in God's presence and to bring me to God. Through and in my great high priest I am brought forever into the divine favor. Without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. But our great high priest has shed his blood to redeem his people from our sins." but I also must have a great high priest because I need a divine intercessor forever and ever who can bring me peace of conscience as I am still in this world when I sin and have broken the law of God, who can grant me persevering grace when I flag and I fail and I feel weak and unable, who can enable me to walk by faith and not by sight in this present evil age. As Calvin put it, Christ's intercession is the continual application of His death to our salvation. He died once for all, but His offering is eternally applied, has eternal efficacy. Let me read to you something from James Henley Thornwell on this great theme of his intercessory work. Listen to these words of this great minister of a bygone day. There is no direct and immediate approach to God. I read this when I was a young man. I've never forgotten it. There is no direct and immediate approach to God. We come before him only in the name of our priest who attracts us by community of nature and who presents all our worship for us before the eternal throne. Our prayers are not heard and received as ours, but as the prayers of Jesus. Our praises are not accepted as ours, but as the praises of Jesus the imperfection which attaches to our performances our pollution and weakness and unbelief stop with the high priest his intercession and atonement cover all defects and we are faultless and complete in him the prayer which reaches the ear of the almighty is from him and not from us and we must and must be as prevalent, that is to say, they must prevail, must be as prevalent as is worth. Here is our confidence not only that Jesus died, but that Jesus lives, that he is our intercessor in the heavenly sanctuary, and there presents, enforces, and, and sanctifies the religious worship of earth. Here is our confidence that in the whole process of salvation, God regards the Redeemer and not us, and deals out blessings according to the estimate of Christ. Here is our confidence that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What an encouragement to prayer and praise, and what thanks shall we render unto God for adapting the marvelous scheme of His grace with such consummate wisdom to the wants and weaknesses of His people. O people of God, He removes my sin as far as the east is from the west and the sacrifice of Himself for my sins. Who like the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement takes it clean, out of sight. And there is only one sacrifice for sin, only one God-man who can continue to present before the Father the eternal efficacy of his sacrifice on my behalf any christian who knows something of the depth of sin in the heart any christian who knows something of the conscience that needs purging cannot help but delight that we have the efficacy the power of the blood of Christ in heaven for us forever christ is the high priest exclusively. There is no other. Nothing that you can do, nothing you can contribute, nothing that you could earn. Only Christ could do this for His people. He is our priest. But also, we need a king, do we not? We need not wait. He need not wait to become king by some earthly millennial reign. Yes, His kingdom comes, That is, awaits consummation, but his kingdom is now. He is the redemptive king who reigns over his redeemed people now. Again, as our catechism says, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. How can I be victor and more than conqueror? if he is not already victor for me over death and hell and the grave? How could I have any any success in the Christian life if he did not rule and defend me? I must have such a king, a priest, who can accomplish what his substitutionary death intended as priest-king, but also who can apply his redemption to my heart, through the Holy Spirit that He has shed abroad in His ascension life. He was the sovereign monarch of the souls of men. Let us have a high view of this great salvation that He has wrought for us, His people, as our King. You know, when I was growing up in certain churches, and there was much, much to praise, much to, much to be thankful for. But nonetheless, when I was growing up in some of those churches, I would hear sometimes things like this. When it comes to salvation, here's how it works. God casts a vote, the devil casts a vote, and you cast the deciding vote. Well, that's simply not true. I could cast no vote. I had no vote. It was not a democracy. He's my king. Who drew me to himself. Draw me, says the spouse in the song of Solomon, and I will run after thee. Or we would have this invitation down an aisle. Now people should be invited, called to Jesus Christ. And the calling is in the preaching. But the choir would sing endlessly, it seemed. Time after time he has waited and now he is waiting again to see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, how he wants to come in. And the impression was of a begging Christ who couldn't save anybody unless you said he can save me. People of God, we have a king. He's a priest. He was a king. And I must have a priest who can expiate sin. And I must have a king who can extirpate sin. In Christ we have this and more. Dabney said, His intercession is a perpetual holding up of His own righteousness on behalf of His people by a perpetual pleading. He doesn't mean a begging. He means the the holding up of the truth and reality of His atonement by a perpetual pleading in order that he may on that ground have this vice-royal power of succoring all their want, supplying all of our need. So, we have a, a priest who died for us. We have a king who rules over us and who defends us. And now these things are brought together, these realities in verse 13, when we are told it is He who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. He is the priest-king. Never in Israel's history was the priest also the king or the king also the priest. But in Christ, all the offices are found to the fullest extent. And the text further says about this priest-king that he shall build the temple of the Lord, and this messianic representation of the future by what was present before the prophet. You see, the temple was among other things, an image, a type, a picture prophecy of the temple that is his church. Not only is he the one who is ruling and reigning in the rebuilding of that temple then and there, But that very temple that is being built represents you, people of God, the living stones that are being built in as he brings you to faith in Christ. And so, there was hope beyond the temple of that day to the coming of the Messiah and the extent of his kingdom and the people of God that would enter in. And we are told in this verse that he would bear the royal honor. Which could be translated, "He will bear the glory," or "He will bear the power," "He will bear the authority," "He will be clothed with the divine glory and majesty as he sits upon the throne," and to him must be ascribed sola dea gloria. And he shall sit and rule on his throne. The text teaches us: He sits. No Old Testament priest sat when he ministered in the temple. No high priest entering into the most holy place once a year for the day of atonement sat down. There was no place for him to sit, no provision made for that. His sacrifice for sins is done, hence he sat down, and he abides forever on his throne, won by conquest and so the Council of Peace, verse 13 tells us, will be between them both. Between what? Well, between the two offices, of course, between the office of priest and the office of king, the Council of Peace shall be between them both. Offices once that the twain could never meet, now are in Christ, bound together. In unity. And so your peace is the result of this council of peace between the two offices. And the symbolism passes way beyond the present time of Joshua the high priest and Zechariah the prophet and of those who have come to bring the silver and gold to rebuild the temple, as with the other symbolism that we find in chapters 1 through 6. Here, is the Messiah who would come and redeem us from our sins and rule and reign over us. You know, what we really have here is Philippians, the second chapter, where the Apostle Paul says, being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. That's his priestly office. Therefore, hath God highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. That's his kingly office. And so he is, people of God, our priest king. And the only people who will see the significance of that Revel in it, glory in it, find it to be most wonderful. Are people who, by the grace of God, have come to know themselves as needy sinners who also need a Lord to rule over their hearts and affections and will? Do you know that? Have you acknowledged yourself to be a sinner? In need of a priest? A high priest whose sacrificial blood only can cleanse? Do you know that our hearts are so untoward that we need a king to rule over us? But I think, people of God, that as we think of Christ, our priest king, He really is ruling. He really is reigning. And it's too easy for me, it's too easy for us to allow our troubles to obscure the throne. To see the needs of the world and we should take the needs seriously. To see the needs of our nation and we should take them seriously. But for those needs to become so Dominant in our thinking and in our hearts, that it obscures the throne. Because we should always realize that this great priest king is working through all the circumstances of this world to bring his own people to himself. That in the midst of the opposition to the truth, he is ruling and defending us and bringing this world to the place of judgment. Do not allow. I'm speaking to my own heart. I'm preaching to myself. Do not allow the needs of this world, the heavy things of this world, to obscure the throne. But there's a third thing to see here: the crown in the temple. And we read of it in fourteen and fifteen. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobaijah Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, undoubtedly, the prophet is doing what sometimes is called telescoping. Undoubtedly, he speaks of those who will come and help to rebuild the temple that needed to be rebuilt in the 6th century B.C., but he also, as he looks close up, then telescopes way out, and he sees something far greater. Those who came from distant lands to assist in the building of the temple in Zechariah's time are themselves types. They also are fu- fu- future picture prophecies of those who will pour into the temple of the church. And so with with verse 15, those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. We should read Ephesians 2.17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Speaking of the inclusion of the Gentiles with believing Jews in the one church. In other words, I believe with all my heart that what we find here prefigured is the missionary character of the church. Church that we are privileged, as He builds His temple, to participate with Him through our prayers, through our preaching, through our giving, through our caring, through our sharing of the gospel, to participate with this great priest, King, in His building of the temple. Christ is the priest. No peace, no atonement, but through Him. Christ is the King who calls all men to bow before Him. And this is the message that we take to the world. And the crown hanging in the temple beckons men to come. As T.V. Moore put it, the missionary character of the church is the circulation of her lifeblood. Suspend this, and she swoons. Stop it, and she dies. You know, most of us were deeply interested, even by way of affection, when the late Queen Elizabeth died. I don't know if you know this, <clears throat> I think I have this right, that when the Queen was in England, she was a member of the Church of England. When she was in Scotland, she was a member of the Church of Scotland, and so she died a Presbyterian. Uh, the Church of Scotland isn't so Presbyterian anymore. But by all accounts, I've heard many times from reliable sources that the late Queen Elizabeth was a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a friend of mine told me recently, who had been a minister in the Church of Scotland, that, that uh, he had spoken to a chaplain of uh, queen, of the queens or look perhaps a reliable person had spoken to the, to the chaplain but it, it rings true that the queen had once said to the chaplain I hope Jesus returns before I die why said the chaplain her answer was so that I may lay my crown at Jesus feet Now, we may not be ro- royal by human standards, though I'm preaching to princes and princesses in the kingdom of God, children of the living God this morning, children by adoption. But even though we may not be royal by human standards, even though we may be despised for believing the Bible, trusting in Christ, nonetheless, her attitude should be our attitude. The attitude of all of us who know the Lord, shouldn't it? That all I have and all I am I want to use for Christ. And in the day when he returns, I want to cast my crowns before his feet, before the feet of my blessed priest king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. People of God, Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Lord, hasten the day. Amen and amen.